0: If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Alison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast, Thank you so much for listening. Later on.
2: Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians I am Cindy Howes. I host this podcast. I am also here with Lizzie No. Hey, Lizzie. Hey, Cindy. So, if you want to stay in touch with Basic Folk, um, sign up for our newsletter, basicfolk.com. Um, that's where you can do that. You can also follow us on social media at Basic Folk Pod. I wanted to bring up that Lizzie No, back on Twitter.
1: Back on Twitter, baby. I have a new handle, Lizzie No is dead. <sighs> RIP to Handsome Lizzie. We had a really great eight-year run.
2: How are you doing? What's happening?
1: I just got home from a mountaintop experience when I was a college student at Stanford University. There was this great bluegrass festival that I used to go to that was free. It's called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, and it is the benchmark that I set for myself as a college student. Like, if I make it and I work hard, like, someday... I will be able to play this festival. And this weekend, I played the festival. Thank you for the applause. I am proud of myself. There's something about reaching a goal that you actually set. When a good thing happens, and it's a surprise, that's cool. But I feel like it's so much better Mm -hmm. if you actually like, you know, write it in your journal. And then years later, it happens, you know, like completing the loop. So how did you feel at the mountaintop? It felt amazing. I felt competent and calm and Mm. comfortable and a little bit ecstatic which I rarely feel I Mm -hmm. have depression I feel like a lot of the time even like on my birthday or even if I'm like receiving jewelry like I'm trying to think of like the most like pleasurable things like if I'm eating a piece of chocolate like I'll think to myself like this is pretty great and I still feel a little sad but when I was on stage, mm-hmm. I was like, I am completely at home and at peace. It was a great feeling. And Emmy Lou was sitting side stage next to my boyfriend Cole, watching, and reportedly at least once was heard saying, Wow. So that's the most I'm going to ever brag wow. on this podcast. Can you tell us about the interaction with Emmy Lou? She kind of acted like we were old friends. She was like, oh, hey. And I was like, would you mind if I took a picture with you? And she was like, wait, I thought we've already been taking photos today. So she was like, get over here, buddy. (laughs) That's
2: amazing.
1: Another fun celebrity run in I had this weekend was I was backstage watching off Aftab's set. She is so brilliant. And I felt Mm -hmm. like my body remained on the ground, but myself had lifted up a few feet above into Mm -hmm. the sky, like I felt like lightheaded. And afterwards I was just crying and crying and I like turned to the person next to me and I was like, that was crazy. I can't stop crying. And he was like, I know, me too. And that person was Elvis Costello. No way. (laughs) We were crying.
2: (laughs) Oh, wow. Lizzie, is that also a journal entry that you had hoped to cry side stage with Elvis Costello? That is a little too
1: specific, but... Maybe I'll write it now and backdate it.
2: I went to, uh, so this was about a month ago when this episode comes out, but I went to the Fresh Grass Festival in North Adams in Massachusetts at Mass Mocha.
1: Oh my gosh, that looked so dreamy. It looked so beautiful.
2: It was very fun. And one of my favorite sets of The weekend was Taj Mahal. He just was like magnificent and funny and charming and just like full of energy All weekend long, I was like on a mission. I was like, I'm going to get a picture with Taj Mahal. So I tapped his tour manager's shoulder and I was like, hey, and he was about to go on stage in like five minutes. And I was like, is it possible to get a picture with Taj? And he was like, not right now. And then he told me to come back 15 minutes after the set. I was like, "Okay, no problem. And then I said, my father went to uh, UMass Amherst with Taj. And they both were in the animal husbandry program. And I wanted to get a picture for my dad. Um, So thanks. I'll come back later. And uh, I'm walking by and I heard, I saw um, the tour manager, Tim, talking to Taj about me, like the interaction that he had just had. And then I heard Tim say, well, do you want to say hi now? And Taj went, yeah. So then oh, I, my he God. starts talking to me, and he's like, "You're Lewis's daughter. You're Lewis's daughter." And I was like, "Hang on, let me put this food down." Yeah. And then I got to talk to him for a few minutes and get a picture with him, like before he went on stage. So, Cindy, was, that's like, amazing. Very cool.
1: I would say that I am about one one thousandth as cool and dazzling as Taj Mahal, and I don't want to talk <laughs> to anyone before I go on stage, like. <laughs> My family, my closest loved ones, my greatest heroes, like they can wait until after I'm done working. So the fact that you got that pre-show hang and you got to like soak up the pre-show glow with Taj Mahal is so cool. Are you the type of
2: person who when you get home from tour, you unpack immediately or does it take a while?
1: Oh, absolutely not. And I'm actually at the point now where... I've gotten busy enough and procrastinated enough that I'm often not fully unpacking my suitcase until I leave for the next tour, which may happen now. Like, sometimes it's like a week between tours. There's yeah. no time. All of that laundry.
2: I was listening to the Jillian Michaels podcast, my problematic hero, Jillian Michaels.
1: Is she the exercise lady?
2: She's the exercise okay. lady that yells at people on The Biggest Loser that no one likes, but I actually like kind of like her, but...
1: <laughs> somebody it's okay I'm a huge fan of Tom Cruise <laughs> oh wow all
2: right on her podcast somebody wrote in and was like what do I do if I like can't work out and I have like very demanding deadlines and Jillian Michael's answer was well do you have time to watch your favorite TV shows yeah and that was it. The, the lady was like yes I do and she was like mm-hmm great
1: You have time to work out. Are you saying I have time to unpack my suitcase? I was just like
2: a roundabout passive aggressive way.
1: Did (laughs) did my boyfriend get to you? Because I'm sort of... Cole and I are in an alliance. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this conspiracy goes all the way to the top and I will be investigating and we will find the source of the corruption.
2: Our episode 200 is coming up. Oh my God, next, Cindy. Like early next year. We have to think about what we want to do for it. So normally, so for episode 100, we celebrated and episode 150. Both times we celebrated by me interviewing a white lady. Um, uh, so groundbreaking. Yeah, very groundbreaking. A white
1: lady interviewing a white lady. It's Some call it white on <laughs> so, white crime. Yeah. Why don't we have a party? Like, why don't we have like a live party? Where we interview Ooh. duos, like only duos are allowed. Like we'll get Watch House, for... we'll get um, Tedeschi and Trucks, we'll get Beyonce and Jay Z, like the accessible Jay Z and Kanye. No, no. absolutely not. <laughs> no,
2: absolutely. We're done with. Him. I said
1: that to. We're I said that him. to get a rise out
2: of you. Haven't we been done with him for a while?
1: I it have
2: heaps. Yeah,
1: something that is like so dear to me about my partner, Cole, is that he's like a big shoe guy, but he has stopped wearing Yeezys. Even a white guy who is really into shoes has realized like, ooh, this isn't a good look anymore. If Cole can do it, you can do it. Guys, basic folk listeners, I'm not saying like, let's bully someone. I just feel like we can... can be done
2: do you think basic folk listeners has like a there's like a big um percentage of basic folk listeners that like listen to kanye
1: i'm not sure and you guys should write in on twitter and let us know but i do want to say that like if you're not listening to kanye because you're like not a huge hip-hop listener like that's totally normal and fine there have been times over the years where i've thought i feel like people are criticizing kanye for racist reasons but now it's coming back around where, like, everybody needs to criticize Kanye for anti-racist reasons. Do you know what I'm saying?
2: Yes, I do. <laughs> it's come back around. I think so. And if you wait long enough, it'll go back around again. Yeah, that's probably true.
1: So if you make sure you're that... criticizing Kanye for anti-racist reasons is what I'm trying to say. Well, this is,
2: you know, <laughs> this is how we loop it back to basic folk because we are going round and round in the circle game. And we've already the discussed that Joni Mitchell has done blackface. She has. So everyone
1: loses. Um, and this is yet another endorsement for Buffy St. Marie's Little Wheel, Spin and Spin, A Better Song, by a wonderful singer-songwriter that we love.
2: Today on Basic Folk, Lizzie Noh talks to Molly Obamsawin. Are y'all ready for a crossover
1: Yes, they were heard screaming. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> Molly is one of my favorite crossover stars in the making. She is a folk artist who a lot of our listeners might know from her wonderful folk trio, Lula Wiles. And she and other members of her band have been guests on Basic Folk in the past, talking about Lula Wiles albums. Um, her upcoming project, Sweet Tooth, however, is is her debut as a jazz band leader and composer. And it is an absolute blessing, knockout. Can I say masterpiece? Do I know enough about jazz to call it a masterpiece? I will call it a masterpiece. Um, This record is so, so interesting from beginning to end. Um, There are a lot of field recordings included in Sweet Tooth um, that Molly intentionally shared to shine a light on the roots and the movement of her community, the Abenaki people, um, who are native to like the Northeast of the U S and Canada. Um, their history is really complex. And she does a lot of great explaining in our conversation about those tribal movements and some of the violence that they've endured. Um, Molly takes a really experimental approach to recording these stories and sharing her own stories. She includes a lot of improvisation. There are uh, chants that she wrote. There are recordings of elders. And then there's like her singular, warm, haunting voice. So we went track by track Mm -hmm. in this conversation, talking about Sweet Tooth, talking about her experience Uh, as a folk artist, as a jazz artist, and as an activist in the Land Back movement. I think that this episode is a really great introduction to intersectionality for folks that might be wanting to learn more Mm. about that term, because um, Molly and I are always like as friends and as musicians and colleagues, like kind of trying to dig into the politics of gender and race and nationality, um, and how those three identities can intersect Um, within one artist. And Molly is such a great example of this. And she's such a leader um, in advocating for like indigenous and gender freedom. So her music is important and it's kind of heartbreaking. And there are also moments where it's a lot of fun. Please, 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 please go buy her album. It's so freaking good.
2: All right. We're going to go track by track on the new record, uh, which is called Sweet Tooth. And... I'm really looking forward to this. Molly is the coolest. Let's get into it. This is Lizzie No talking to Molly Obomsowin on Basic
1: Folk. Molly, thank you so much for coming back to Basic Folk. It is so great to have you here.
0: Thank you for having me here. Excited.
1: Well, well, I've told you a couple of um, pre-interview... Uh, things to keep in mind (laughs) but I'm also going to tell them to the listeners one of them is that you have been on basic folk before in 2021 it's a really great interview with Cindy and I think everyone should go back and listen to that interview because I'm not covering the basics in this interview they might be like where is she from where'd she go to school who are her influences and guess what I don't care
0: (laughs) yeah this is we're taking the basic out of basic folk for this one
1: Yeah, this is extreme folk. We're jumping into new music and new horizons. Um, The other uh, contextual excuse that I'm going to give is that um, your new album covers like multiple so called countries, languages, and I'm going to do my very best with pronunciation, but I want you to correct me when you feel comfortable. And I want our listeners to know that I am not an expert. Fuck yeah. You got it. Okay. Here we go. Extreme Folk with Molly (laughs) Avonswin. So like many of our listeners, I first became your fan through your work as a bassist, singer, and songwriter for the folk trio, Lula Wiles. Um, and I think I saw you guys play at city winery in like 2018. And I was like, who are these cool ladies? Uh Um, but this new album, sweet tooth is a completely different creature. So how do you show up differently as a band leader of a jazz project than you do as a folk singer? And like, by that same token, do you feel like audiences receive you differently in the jazz space than they do in the folk world? Ooh, just going in. Okay. Yeah. I said it was um, extreme. Um, folk.
0: This is extreme. <laughs> okay. Um, cool. Well, first of all, like, I feel very differently being a front person and it's definitely something that like, I didn't quite have a full appreciation for I think when I was mostly being a bassist uh, yeah. in Lula Wiles like we we did have kind of um a concept that we were all sharing lead roles but like in in effect like I was very much like the bassist who sometimes sang songs you know Right and and um band leading is really hard And, like, being on stage and being the one responsible for talking is, like,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so hard. I hate it. (laughs) Dude, I feel like one of the main themes on Basic Folk that, like, almost every guest shares is, like, talking is so fucking hard. It's the worst. We shouldn't be expected so many (laughs) musicians are like I play music because I don't like talking and then this weird side project of the job is having to talk all the time yeah Um, so do you feel like very different in your body on stage when you realize like you are the center of attention versus like I am one of three in a band
0: yeah I'm definitely getting used to it I will say so um we just finished a tour together where I was not doing sweet tooth but I was playing guitar and singing and Mm -hmm. you know doing that thing and that, to me, is less comfortable than, like, showing up as a front person with a bass. Um, Interesting. So, yeah, there's a lot. Why do you think that is? Um, probably because I dedicated my entire life to playing the bass. And sure. so I just feel <laughs> like I, like, own it more and I feel like I earned it. Whereas, like... I don't know. Maybe we got into this a little bit on tour, but like anyone can play the guitar and frankly if you play folk music like eventually you're going to have to be playing the guitar. So yeah. <laughs> So like it it kind of feels I feel like I'm like cheating or like I don't know what, like just like less authentic in myself. Um which maybe I don't know, like you, you do have to like show up and fake it and like talk on stage so like maybe that that fits in the role but
1: (laughs) yeah well that's my whole career I had no plans to play guitar and like do the solo thing I think yeah there's always that sense of like are people gonna see through me
2: but Uh, I have to say I've
1: seen you perform now quite a few times and you're like very in your in your body in yourself when you're playing guitar, I think it, Thank you. no one can notice if that's great. what you're, if that's great. what you're worried about. Cool. Now, here's another easy question. Do you have a working definition of folk music?
0: Oof, dang. That's a great question that I'm so happy to answer.
1: Great. Bring <laughs> I it feel on. Like, okay. So I've, I've actually gone... never asked a guest that before, but I'm really interested yeah. to hear what you have to say because of the incredible album of yours that we're about to talk about i think it really hits at this like intersection of jazz folk field recordings etc so yes. tell me what you think folk music is
0: yes okay first of all i think folk music is a there's like a continuum right the like mm-hmm. folk rock jazz continuum it's not like a clean like you know there are no boundaries or borders in
1: those definitions My ears just perked up when I heard "No Borders." We're gonna put a pin in that dismantle colonial borders. Number one, (laughs) Um,
0: but when you know, I feel like I've gone through a big journey with folk music because I grew up doing a lot of like New England folk music, which is very Mm -hmm. specific, really kind of dorky Mm -hmm. subculture of New England. and then I went to music, full, music school uh, <laughs> for a hot music second. Fools. I really said that. Um, <laughs> and um, and then like it was kind of like bludgeoned into my brain that folk music is only like traditional Appalachian fiddle music, and if like anything else is happening,
1: <laughs> I know. Um, if anything, I just made an obscene gesture. I'm sorry to our listeners, but luckily folk. you didn't have to see it. Yeah
0: um maybe we'll release the video of this to like (laughs) heavy subscribers (laughs) so um you know when i um lula Wiles is no longer a working entity i don't know Mm -hmm. if that's out yet but it's out now
1: that's a scoop Um, that we are releasing here on (laughs) basic Fold.
0: yes um and when that news kind of hit the floor i was like okay whatever i do next like who knows what it's going to be, but, like, I don't really feel like it's going to be folk music in the way that, like, people associate Lula Wiles with folk music, although it's, like, quite not really folk music, what Lula Wiles did, but also that's fine. Do, you know, (laughs) do what you will with your definitions.
1: (laughs) But it had enough of the trappings of folk music to pass. Yes, yeah, it was folk passing. Um,
0: (laughs) And when I wrote wrote, um, Sweet Tooth, I had this kind of Question of, like, am I gonna lose all my folk fans because I made a jazz album? And I really Mm -hmm. sat with that for a long time and realized that, like, I was the one who got to define it. And, Mm -hmm. um, definitely, you know, this is the folk music of Wabanaki people, right? And that Mm -hmm. was like a big thing that I landed on was like, I think the scene that you and I are in, Lizzie, more or less, is like. Mm -hmm very dedicated to this idea that like folk music looks and sounds a certain way and has only a certain number of influences if we're talking about the American context. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, but folk is a global term, first of all. And I think the real like dissonance comes when like, you know, Wabanaki indigenous music here isn't even world music. It's not like global folk music. It's at home folk music. Right.
1: So, so if, if I'm hearing you correctly, the problem is America and Americana, like folk music is just the music of a people, I think. Yeah. And it sounds like I, I have, I had a sense when I listened to this album that that was sort of your definition as well. Sweet. Good read. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump into Sweet Tooth. It is an incredible album. And I want to go track by track because there are three movements in this album each with like a particular story to tell. First track is called Odana, which Odina. I believe means Odana. <laughs> See, here's my first mispronunciation. Odana, <laughs> which is which translates to the village. Is that correct? Yeah. Can you tell me about um, physical landscape elements of your upbringing that found their way into this song?
0: Whoa, cool. Yeah. So, right, Odana is the village. Odinak is the reservation. Um, it, the K addition means like at. The village basically
1: at the
0: village. Okay. Um, and it's the place where all the people went, um, during the colonial wars and to get away from various plagues that extremely, uh, dirty <laughs> pilgrims <laughs> brought. They didn't know how to shower at that time. We had to teach them. Um, and so, so Odinac is like, summer are, are, yeah. 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 are still
1: learning. I'm afraid yeah, I'm still learning. Extreme folk.
0: Um, And so, so Odenak is at the northern part of our territory and I grew up, I was born in like the middle part of our territory. My sister was born in the western part. I now live in the eastern part. So I've like kind of been all over it. But um, Mm -hmm. my upbringing has been basically, um, I kind of define Wamanaki or Abenaki territory as like between the um, Lake Champlain um, river valley so like the the green mountains mm-hmm. and the adirondacks over there and um the kind of western foothills in central maine and yeah so a lot of mountains um <laughs> yeah. a lot of waterways i guess our, our territory is also like defined by waterways because that's how mm-hmm. we um got around everywhere
1: yeah they were like our highways can you tell me a little bit about the story of Odena? like i know there may be elements of it that you would prefer not to share with a wide audience. And if that's the case, can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. So yeah, the story, basically it starts out honoring Odinak. It says like Odinak, um, beloved ancestral place, basically mm-hmm. the place that our grandfathers or our like passed on, um, elders founded for us and protected for us and um, basically like the heart of our nation. Um, That's Mm. kind of what it starts out by saying. And then it it goes on to talk about um, this specific place uh, in the western part of the territory called Mazipskoi, where we had a a village that was like a satellite village. And it talks about how we were... um, forced out of that place um and and it says you know throughout the song we're, we're thanking the ancestors and we're saying basically like great forests and landscapes extend from our former villages um basically it's overgrown like because we're no longer able to be there and so we have to stay vigilant to protect the one place that will be forever ours it's a really t- like sad sad like right. tragic story um but it's also you know a story of like gratitude like both mourning and gratitude because like right. we are here because of this particular village
1: well wow, so in a sense it's like even the existence of the village is not the whole story like the village is like a remnant of a much bigger thing that that existed and a bigger sort of homeland that existed before these wars and plagues
0: yeah it's i mean Odinak was founded. Um, it's not like an ancient village place where we've always mm-hmm. been, right? It was a refugee settlement, basically. Mm-hmm. So, like, we were displaced by warfare and disease, and Odinak is the refugee settlement.
1: Um, did you have feelings or concerns about like keeping your community's story safe, um, even as you're sharing it with a wide audience?
0: Yeah, there's definitely concerns. Like, there's there is part of that, even that song that I'm, like, skipping over in the translation that are more mm-hmm. spiritual um, because I feel like um, folks feel really entitled to that part, but they don't – the spiritual elements, but they don't want to talk mm-hmm. about the colonial history. And so, right. like, I do want to share as much as possible about, like, our real history because it's so – um, erased by media and by the education system and everything, you know, especially in the Northeast. Um, mm-hmm. People can drive through Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine and have no idea how to even learn about um, the Indigenous people of that place, let alone yeah. that we still exist.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, yeah. So like
1: you're still here. Yes. This is like a continuously evolving story. It's not like something that is just in a dusty history book that no one's reading for some reason.
0: Yeah, and like, not only are we still here, but like, we're still, you know, our culture is still evolving and like, we're still, like, we have um, an aesthetic kind of culture, all of our own, Mm -hmm. that like, you know, people really don't um, think that Indigenous folks have like, influenced American musics, for instance, Mm -hmm. and Indigenous musical ideas have been at the center and like a part of it throughout the development Mm -hmm. of like all American musics, right? So, yes.
1: Okay, I want to talk about lineage. It's yeah. the second part of the first movement. I feel your bass playing so strongly in this composition, kind of as a main character, as much as it is a rhythmic element. Like they, it's like a this sort of pulsing constant for the first five minutes, and then starts to kind of walk around and dance, and then it settles back in to this like deep clarity at the end. Mm. If you had to describe this character and their story, what would it be?
0: Yeah. So the the composition that I made for this it's like um, very minimal there's only like a couple mm-hmm. of written things but um, the time signature that I mm-hmm. wrote in this was timeless because that cool. is what I wanted the overall energy to reflect, like, the timelessness of lineage, right? So there is, like, a pulse. There is, like, yes. you know, even if you wanted to say that it's in 7-8, like, you could mm-hmm. say that, but, like, it's loose because...
1: Well, I feel better because I was like, <laughs> I feel a pulse, and yet I'm having a lot of trouble counting this song, <laughs> and maybe it's because I didn't go to a fancy music school, but now no. I feel vindicated. <laughs> yes.
0: Please feel vindicated. Yeah. Okay. You know, and the the um, the bass part is supposed to represent, I think, the, um, yeah, the continuity, I guess, of the people.
1: It's the people. So (laughs) if there was not a ton written for this composition, can you talk about the environment in the studio that led to the recording that came out on the final track? Like, how did you get your people to be like in the headspace that you wanted to create this story?
0: Yeah. So we, we did a lot of talking about, ancestors Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think that's like the major space that this album lives in um i'm the only indigenous person on uh in the band um on that recording but um i think we all held like a very deep reverence for ancestors everyone in that in that musical experience and so Mm -hmm. i was just really encouraging people to tap into like what lineage Means to them and ancestry and the stories um, through colonial times that we have all mm-hmm. lived through, all of our people, all of our communities and ancestors, you know. And um, I think that that did a lot for setting yeah. the like, emotional, and spiritual
1: sphere for that recording. Um, yeah. Now, did you sing live with the band when you recorded it?
0: Yeah, I did. And Miriam El Hajli, um, the other lead vocalist, also did.
1: Wow, Um, that I feel I felt like there were some moments, especially towards the end of the track, where there was like this incredible tension and like kinship between the vocal and was it the coronet? Was the
0: Uh, the I can't remember who's playing last in it.
1: Um, Anyway, there's like a there's like Molly and say the name of the other vocalist. Uh, Ah, Miriam. Miriam, it's like this really tense cool dissonant moment where the vocals weave in with the other instruments and it's these very like high almost stressful tones can you talk about those moments and like what part of the story that's speaking to
0: yeah I mean I think it's definitely speaking to like the last few hundred years in America Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) yeah um yeah but you know
0: that wasn't a defined like um part of the composition necessarily I think we just all got there like we really Mm -hmm. needed to like air our pain and yeah. anger you know together mm-hmm. um but yeah
1: now that's a quality of your voice that i haven't heard very much i think you really feel the transition away from the like close and very warm harmonies of lula wiles <laughs> to this like just as embodied but very different type of whale like how does it feel to share that other side of your voice with people that have gotten to know you in a completely different context?
0: Yeah, I think um my singing has definitely been like a um a journey in in mm-hmm. this new project because you know with Little Wiles, it was like so it had to be perfectly dialed in, like crisp, yeah. you know, like very like laser focused tone no vibrato no like (laughs) humanity Mm for lack of a better term you know like harmony singing in that way that Lou Wiles did is like a very scientific um, thing
1: harmony singing like that can be like it can feel at once like you are like this zen part of a whole but then there's also like I feel like a heartbreaking moment sometimes like when I've had producers be like okay cut the vibrato." You're yeah. like no yeah. I'm a human. Help, help, let me <laughs> let me out. <laughs> totally, totally.
0: And that's like I feel like letting like your real voice do what voices do, which is like mm-hmm. they crack, they break, they like get yes. guttural sometimes, you know, like that is the folk music thing for me. You know, yeah. like that feels like folk music.
1: Wawa Sintoda, is that correct? Yes. This pronunciation? Okay. So this like is a tone shift, right? This is like the intro to the second movement. And there's sort of a marching band aesthetic, which to me always brings thoughts of like death and machines. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's kind of an uncanny cheerfulness to the beginning of this song, which is sort of like a hymn marching song. So Can you talk about your community's relationship with marching band music, marching band instruments, and also, like, what the hell is the (laughs) harrowing of hell?
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. I, like, I wish I knew more about what the Mm -hmm. harrowing of hell was, and I also am glad that I don't. But, um, okay. Um, So marching band music. This is a big one because this is kind of the beginning of indigenous relationships with jazz with like early jazz and like ragtime and like mm-hmm. the same i think as a lot of black communities in the south right in louisiana at least you know where they were like horn band starting and there's like this whole like ecosystem of
1: mm-hmm.
0: of experimenting with horns and <laughs> drums right um and so those instruments were brought to reservations through um i believe through the military first mm-hmm. and foremost um Another like I guess another understanding of Odinac as it was um forming was it was like a kind of a military base, like a colonial base against the Mohawk and the English. Um we allied with the French, FYI. Um mm-hmm. but so so that brought marching band instruments. Um and also um of course like the church and um the missionaries and the residential schools brought um those instruments to our, our reservations and all across Turtle Island, um, you have all of these native marching bands and native big bands popping up in the early Mm -hmm. 1900s and maybe even the late 1800s. It's like, yeah, it's at the forefront.
1: For people that are ignorant, can you (laughs) just talk through a little bit of the residential schools and how that led to like, um, how that like influenced indigenous culture as a whole? Like there, it, it played a huge role in like how Native children were like kind of forcefully assimilated into American culture but can you talk about like the cultural musical side of that?
0: Yeah Um, so residential schools were a state sponsored program across the US and across Canada um, where they would take indigenous people from their communities um, force them into these boarding schools to Christianize them, to estrange them from themselves and from their families. They would abuse them out of um speaking their own languages or you know they would cut their hair. It's like a very mm-hmm. traumatic also like trigger warning to people listening. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, the We the, can
1: share a trigger warning at the yeah, beginning
0: of the episode. Cool. Yeah. The I think the last residential school like recently closed. So like this mm-hmm. is like living history, right? And um and lots of like an entire generation maybe several of living natives right now are still like living with that trauma. Um, mm-hmm. but one way that, um, I guess one one thing that the residential schools did a way to like get them, get the students more like, I don't know what attuned to like American culture or like American, mm-hmm. like musical ideas, European musical ideas really, um, was to, yeah, teach them to like play in horn bands. Um, and, yeah. And so I think a lot of native kids like went on to have their own horn bands or join military bands or lead military bands, et cetera, um, after residential school.
1: That is fascinating. So like what yeah. we're talking about is basically kidnapping that yes. turned into this musical innovation.
0: Yeah. I mean, because if you take away every means that kids have to be able to express themselves but you give them a horn, you know, mm-hmm. like, what are you going to do? Well, um, something
1: really desperate might come out. Yeah. 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 Um, and like, and I want people to hear about the harrowing of hell, which is this like sort of off-brand Christian Jesuit myth about Jesus going down into hell to preach to the damned. And, and I read that that was like this sort of fable that, you incorporated into Wallace and Tota, So why was it important to like include this like very weird sci-fi Christian tale um yes. on this record? Okay, the Catholic fanfic. I mean, <laughs> frankly <Catholic> fanfic, yes. <laughs> That's so, what I love about catholics. Like they're they're not purists at all. Like they love the no. fanfare. They oh love to God. just like add a little pizzazz to the Bible. Yeah.
0: They're like this is here's my version. So, um
1: <laughs> Taylor's version.
0: Yes. The um Jesuits were early on, like, trying to mess with the Abenakis and mm-hmm. the Wabanakis, and um, so I don't know exactly when this hymn made its way into our community, but it could mm-hmm. have been as early as the 1690s, and Whoa. basically, um, it's a, I haven't been able to find an OG version, like a French or Latin or whatever version, mm-hmm. but presumably there is one, and it was translated into the Abenaki language um, for what we to adopt, as a means to, right. like, get us to believe in jesus and the translation is hilarious because it's like you'll find this in a lot of early translations from catholic into indigenous languages where like we don't really have a language of like domination and like submission the way that like the europeans do Mm -hmm. (laughs) um because that's not really how we think or work at all and so um like we have like Jesus our relative like Jesus our chief like what what yeah. exactly is Jesus supposed to be I don't know <laughs> but like he's going down the stairs and he's retrieving some spirits from somewhere else wow <laughs> yeah
1: um...
2: ka agu yo danaka chi udai na za ma dauno ni ke mo janula marfit ditaka chi awet pas Yodale Odana Placamiga Uaga Kinawante. Let's
1: let's move on to the next track. Pedig Pedeguadzo. Pediguad. Can you say it again, Molly? Pediguazois. Pedigwadzois, okay, I ran up to that. And I felt confident, and then I lost my confidence. Um, okay, I want to talk about field recordings. So, field recordings are kind of the foundation of like what we think of as contemporary folk music, Americana music. I feel, and this is not like a basic folk um, official opinion. Like I personally feel that a focus on field recordings can also be used to trap. Native, black and brown communities in Amber. Like, these mm. are people of the past. Mm. Um, there, can be, there can be ways in which we listen to field recordings and think like, okay, these cultures are old-timey. Um, and like, keep minorities out of like the present evolving um, power structure of the music industry. But you took a really, really interesting journey into the field recordings that made it onto Sweet Tooth. So can you talk a little about the process of sorting through those recordings, how you made them feel so contemporary, um, and, like, how you chose which field recordings to include?
0: Yeah, so um, I feel like I can't fully take credit for the idea because I'm really mm-hmm. inspired by my friend Jeremy Dutcher, um, mm-hmm. who is a um, a musician, pianist, um, who released an album that was basically, like, you know, inspiring to me in this way. Mm-hmm. Um they they used field recordings and kind of just drop them into the middle of their um compositions in a really powerful way. Um but I, I wanted to I wanted to use the the actual source recording um for Petagodzoas um because it's not a um a musical Offering right, it's a story, mm-hmm. and it's a story in our language. And I wanted to honor a like a first language speaker um, of Abenaki to be on this album um, to kind of like I don't know, you know, I can like write as many compositions about the ancestors as I want, you know, but the there's only so much material of the ancestors actually telling it the way that it was, you know, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to feature that, um, yeah. What was the question?
1: <laughs> well, I just think there's a tricky relationship between like sharing between sharing recordings that feel and sound like this is an artifact of the past mm. and trying to merge that with like the contemporary reality of like being a person of color, a native person mm-hmm. in contemporary America. So how do you like take something that's, like, of the past and, for example, like, share it with a contemporary audience, share it in a live performance, and let people know, like, this is still living history. These are still, like, contemporary topics.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think just, like, the fact of performing it and, you know, being alive on stage in front of an audience, um, it, it like connects dots for people, you know. You're like, oh yeah, like this is how I maybe I can picture the guy who's saying this story back in the whatever century, right? But mm-hmm. but I'm also seeing this like young hip like native person that's mm-hmm. you know not dressed in full regalia and you yes. know doesn't live in a fucking wigwam, you know. Um, sorry, you have to throw. Wait, a little... you don't?
1: <laughs> Believe oh it or not,
0: actually the wigwam just translates <laughs> to like abode. So technically, we all live in wigwams, but. Neither here nor there. Oh,
1: that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you wear on stage when you are performing uh, these types of pieces? Um, typically, clothing. Um, cool. <laughs> yeah. What's your What's your stage? What's your stage fit?
0: Um, Ideally, you know, I haven't fully um, conceptualized it yet. In In first we Tooth mm-hmm. because we haven't played the shows yet, but mm-hmm. I want to look like I live in fucking. 2050. <laughs> yeah. You know, Girl it's Girl of, really, yeah, of the future. Person of the future. Exactly. It's, it's, um, the whole, like, um, the white gaze thing is, um, really frustrating for us in that way. Like, aesthetically, mm-hmm. the white gaze, they're like, oh, like, you're not, why isn't your hair in braids? Like, why aren't you wearing leather? Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, it's, oh know it's something, it's something that like when I was in In Little Isles for instance mm-hmm. Like it was not like I didn't feel it as much um, As I do as a band leader Where like I don't know it's something I've really grappled with um, Presenting like the Malia in Show because mm-hmm. um, I'm really taking up native space And like claiming that in a way that like I wasn't necessarily doing in like a Folk band that was all white beyond mm-hmm. me Um, And and so like the like, it feels a lot more um, vulnerable to that kind of, um, I don't know what audience expectation or presumption.
1: Right. No, I do think there's like a heightened sense of responsibility that is undeniable when you are putting forward a story that like says like this is like an indigenous story. This is a native story versus like this is a folk album made by 3 people of like varying backgrounds like yeah. i think there is a heightened sense of that people that are outside of your community are going to be watching and like taking impressions and like yeah. that's not exactly fair
0: yeah yeah
1: but you live with it
0: you li- you have to <laughs>
1: fractions which like very much touches on this same topic can you talk about the melancholy that that, like, just lives in this track and the storytelling that the acoustic guitar is doing? Yeah. Um, The melancholy that lives in this track is the, like,
0: kind of woozy, dystopian experience of, like, feeling like an entire world has, like, a microscope to your blood. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, this obsession with, like, blood quantum for lack of a better term right this like Mm -hmm. idea that like um if you have a drop of indian blood then you're like you know some kind of exotic but if you don't have enough indian blood you're just like not authentic it's like this whole it's a very weird thing it's it's like kind of the opposite of like the other one drop (laughs) concept
1: what's what's that do you want to talk about (laughs) that I mean I think I have a paper bag handy if we need to like like... review for the audience no I mean I think we're joking about it but also like there are such real consequences I mean there are federal benefits that come with these like perceived levels of purity of native heritage right like can you talk a little bit about what that feels like and actually like what you wanted to communicate with this particular track about those fractions
0: Yeah. Um, that's kind of, you know, it's like a heavy question and like, but I think what people don't understand, um, on the whole is that indigenous nations are just that we are nations. We are Mm -hmm. like political sovereign entities. And that means that we get to define our citizenship the way that we always have, which is by like kinship relation. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're related to us, you are part of the community. If you like do some serious wrongs, you can get kicked out of the community, no matter how sure. pure your blood is quote unquote in the Western eye. Right. I and, hate the word um, purity so much. I'd love to strike it from the language. Same. <laughs> um, also probably a word we don't have in, in the indigenous. Language. Um, <laughs> I could be wrong about that, but, uh, you know, conceptually at least I'm right. Um, and so, so with this track, it's just, I mean, I don't know if I have, like, a, a thesis statement other mm-hmm. than I really wanted to communicate that it does a serious number on, like, the the mental health of young Native kids growing up um, feeling like their elders or the colonial government or, mm-hmm. like, the white gays is imposing some kind of, like, value hierarchy on, like, what is in their blood, you know? Yeah. It's just fucked.
1: leads really beautifully into blood quantum which is the the closing composition on sweet tooth i want to talk about the opening like percussion moment um what did you want that drum moment to do in the mind and the body of the listener and you might have a different answer for native versus non-native audiences Mm -hmm. so where did you land on that
0: um honestly I wanted to, so Savannah Harris is the drummer. Mm-hmm. She's a cool. badass, um, obviously. And oh, yeah. um, I basically, you know, I, I said, like, you're going to get us to Blood Quantum from Fractions. And, I, you know, that was definitely a moment of, like, take us there in the way that you feel it, mm-hmm. you know. So um, I, I can't really take any responsibility for the composition of that. <laughs> wow. Um,
1: yeah that's beautiful the trust that you put in her i mean it's so emotive and it's really dark and it it kind of is like a wake-up call i felt um as a listener you're like we're about to be um brought home on this record Mm. the track begins with this drum solo and it ends with a penobscot language chant that you co-wrote um so can you, can you describe like the arc of that song, where it begins, where it ends, what was the intention behind it? And like, why was it important to include this original chant that you wrote?
0: Yeah, so the, the three movements of this um, suite are kind of addressing um, different, so, so the first one is like <clears throat> for the ancestors, right? It's like, mm-hmm. Orina, lineage. The second one is like the spiritual realm. And the third movement that we're getting into now is, uh, it's for the living. Basically, it's like, here's our today Mm -hmm. bullshit that we're dealing with. And so fractions, of course, is the place that a lot of us are coming up in. Um, And, you know, it's more of a question, um, you know, like, what, what are we to do with this um, challenge that we're facing right now, um, as a generation moving forward? And and blood quantum, you know, the beginning of this song, um, I actually wrote for, for a different project. Um, and I wanted to convey like, um, kind of a desolate landscape, frankly, with, um, Mm -hmm. uh, kind of an undercurrent of like anger, um, and modernity and, um, I don't know, a, the rock and roll attitude, (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) you know, you hear that there, there, there are like new guitar tones that you hear only on this final track that like we have not been introduced to yet on the album, which is like pretty cool and, and different than a lot of rock albums I've heard.
0: Yeah. Yep. Um, believe it or not, native musical ideas also influenced rock and roll.
1: (laughs) You don't say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, but you know, that's the place that we're starting in. It's like, okay, emerging from fractions. We're, like, feeling desolate. We're feeling tired. We're feeling confused. Um, mm-hmm. And and kind of looking at, like, what the future could be, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And Blood Quantum is, like, a, maybe a 12-minute track. It's, like, quite mm-hmm. a journey. Um, and, and it takes us all the way, you know, through um, several landscapes, I guess. And, um, I wanted to end with this chant that I wrote with, um, my partner, actually Lakota Sanborn and an elder from his community, um, Carol Dana, who's a language keeper and, and the chant translates to, um, we stand ready to face and fight him. Uh, we remember our matriarchs and we honor our grandmothers. And I feel like this is kind of the like ultimate fuck you to um the kind of systems of domination we've been talking about where Mm -hmm. like christian culture catholicism colonial systems right they have um they put men white men in positions of power Mm -hmm. over all communities of color basically and Mm -hmm. entire landscapes that are not theirs um and um they've done a terrible job of course um they've caused a lot of spiritual harm and trauma Mm -hmm. of course um but ultimately like native wisdom has always valued women as the leaders in the community and ultimately like the keepers of like life (laughs) life life-giving powers you know of course and that seems to me like the answer you know to put like matriarchs um back in their rightful place Mm -hmm. um as a means to preserve community and and lead us forward
1: can you talk about rematriation like at you've given kind of the spiritual and historical framework how is that term important in your work um as an individual like in your own life and as far as like being an advocate for land back
0: yeah so for people who don't know rematriation um it's like loosely defined as um a reconnection to the motherland and mm-hmm. the um spiritual practices that come with that i think i could say it like mm-hmm. that there's like lots of definitions but um With this idea that colonialism, in a global sense, has severed our umbilical connection to the places that we come from, Mm -hmm. like, the places we really come from, you know? And that has affected different peoples in really different kinds of ways, and um, the process of rematriation is to renew or resume or reform an umbilical connection, um, like a motherly connection with the land. And, um, it's, like, a deep healing practice. It's a religion, you know? It really is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what indigenous communities, and myself included, uh, like, that's what we're really working on right now is for, in, in our territory, at least, you know, we are, um, we're working to get land back. We have successfully gotten some land back, and...
1: Hell we'll yeah!
0: Come. Yeah. We did that. You have had
1: some, like, I... <laughs> I have learned of some of these significant victories and it like gives me the chills. This is the real work of like creating the future. Thank you. Sorry, carry on. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it is though, you know, and and so, but with that, like, it's not just about getting the land back and owning land, you know, it's about like, Mm -hmm. how do we we make, um, how do we write our relationship with the land when like the colonial society has forced us to live in ways that are so disrespectful to her, you know, and mm-hmm. and a lot of that is resuming and remembering Indigenous ceremonies and like land practices, you know, like food ways. Um, but it also, in our in Wabanaki, at least, it's it means like teaching forward and welcoming um, those who might not be Indigenous or Wabanaki or whatever, but are living in this land like teaching those ways so that other people can also root here you know Mm -hmm. if they need to so that um those who have been uprooted through colonialism are not landless and stateless um Mm. spiritually (laughs) basically
1: it's like a welcoming practice (laughs) i just wanted to sit with that for a second that's really powerful to hear i mean can you talk a little bit if you are comfortable about how the creation of sweet tooth tied in with the ways in which you're considering and reconsidering your own gender identity. Like Mm. the rematriation is a huge theme. And I, I know you and I have talked like as friends off mic about like what some of the stakes are as far as considering yourself a woman in a minority culture in America, what that means, how that, like, can help and hurt in our own lives. And, like, were there parts of making this record that, like, helped you figure out where you're headed on that journey? Mm,
0: that's a cool question. Yeah, I really appreciated the conversation we had about it, which I'll just kind of um, yeah. summarize a little bit, you know. Sure, that... we
1: can just paraphrase.
0: <laughs> um, basically, you know, if I'm considering myself in, like, the American gender landscape i'm like Mm -hmm. i am not really interested in participating in like american femininity like i've never related to it i've always been more of a like for to use an outdated term tomboy you know and like just
1: really like yeah um and and never really like well and i don't want to speak for you but like we talked about this on tour like as a woman of color we were never invited like it wasn't even a question of like do i feel like a woman it was like you were told you are not a part of this Mm -hmm. you are not Mm -hmm. pretty you are Mm -hmm. not protected Mm -hmm. you are not held on a pedestal in the way that like white womanhood was constructed to be like you're just not even in the running Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you had to like come up with your own gender identity outside of that um and I know that that's something that you're still like working with and then there's this whole other side of it which is which is like we have lived and been part of this community
0: of like other yeah women of color who have been like denied that kind of recognition of femininity or Mm -hmm. you know on par level with like white womanhood or whatever and (laughs) and to like to kind of discard that and be like you know what actually like i'm non-binary and that's it and like don't call me a woman is kind of to like throw away like it it feels disrespectful to the like experience that we have had with our communities of Mm -hmm. like you know yeah like i
1: don't you know i'm not a part of that anymore like i'm just
0: gonna like forget that i went through that with you
1: right like there's a sisterhood that you have to honor even as your own like individual sense of like where you fit in the universe is changing like both things are true at the same time
0: exactly and yeah and you know And I think that's, it's good to honor that it's more complicated than, like, a binary, like, a yes or no, or, like, Mm a they or a she or whatever, but, like, that all being said, in my own community and, in like, indigenous practices and conceptualizations of, like, womanhood, like, it's incredibly empowering, and, like, of course I'm recognized as that, and I, like, I accept that role and responsibility, you know, because it Mm -hmm. does feel, like, so much more free um, because, like, femininity is a spectrum, in mm-hmm. but it's a sacred spectrum. You know, any part of you that's on that spectrum is sacred, whether you have a vagina or not.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I want to cheer and clap for that final <laughs> comment. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Thank you for going there with me. Mm-hmm. I think this is a topic that I've, like, been wanting to talk more about through Basic Folk. And I think, like, your story and this album are, like, such a beautiful road into like getting free from a lot of the concepts of gender, genre mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Borders mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um, so thank you for like being willing to be transparent about that on the podcast Hell yeah! Oh yeah. my final question relates to where you are physically right now you're about to record a new album so who is Feather Bitch? <laughs> what can you tell us about what's coming? Cool. Feather Bitch is um, the
0: most powerful version of myself, um, maybe, um, where she does and says exactly what she wants. She only... Um, she doesn't apologize for being anti-colonial. <laughs> cool. And, um, yeah, she's my, like, rock star alter ego. Um, and she is also um, a band, where I play cool. guitar and sometimes electric bass and sing, and um, she is making an album right now.
1: <laughs> I am so excited to hear it. I think it's going to be a horse of a completely different color than True. Sweet Tooth or Lula Wiles releases. Mm-hmm. Like it's, I've I've gotten a sneak peek of some of these tracks on tour, and people are going to lose it over oh, yeah. this new album. Thank you. I hope so. Molly, thank you so much for coming back to Basic Folk to talk about your new music. Are you willing and able to do a brief lightning round where you just take some quick (sighs) questions and shoot from the hip? Yes, I can try. I'm so bad at these. (laughs) Jeans or sweatpants? Sweatpants. So Planes, trains, or automobiles? Oh, trains? Trains are good. You're doing great so okay. far. Um, what is the best holiday? Oh, um, Hanukkah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, oh Do God. you have any pre show rituals? Going pee. <laughs> Peeing is so important. <laughs> really um, is. What would you like to eat at your last meal on earth? Oh my God, fried green tomatoes. Yum. Yeah. Who is your celebrity crush? Oh my god. Um Buffy Saint Marie, I don't know. Oh <laughs> wow, yeah. Babe, so babe Town. <laughs> yeah, I um, though. What color is your soul? Oh, orange. You need to meet Will Chef of Ockerville River. Um, <laughs> finally, do you know any jokes? No. Only only um colonialism is a fucking joke. <laughs> It's not funny, but it is a joke. Yeah. Molly Ivamsuin, thank you so, so much. Again, everybody go out and listen to her new album, Sweet Tooth. Listen in a darkened room and get ready to dance and cry. Please.
0: Thank you so much.
2: This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find us there. You can find us on the SiriusXM app by searching for Basic Folk. You can listen wherever you get podcasts or go to our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. You are special. We care about you. Have a lovely day. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.